This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Unfortunately, my co-host Sheila Warren cannot be with me again this week. I'm looking forward to having her back in the saddle next week in a live recording that we'll do together on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos. Still, I think we have a great show lined up for you today. In this week's episode, we'll dive into what are really the two core challenges facing the crypto community as it strives to scale toward mass adoption in a way that still enables real, effective, transformative impact. I'm talking about security and decentralization. Both of those are closely interrelated and interdependent and require something of a balancing act with a third leg of the scaling and adoption stool, and that is UX or user experience. This idea that the tools we're using should be easy to use. That third part is often dependent upon efficiency, something that's hard to achieve while also striving for security and decentralization. We'll do this via a discussion with two guests that I caught up with at the AIM Summit, a conference on alternative investments that was held in London this week. One of those is Alex Zinder, the global head of Ledger Enterprise. Millions of crypto users use uh, Ledger's main retail product, the nano series of hardware wallets that secure your tokens in your own hands. Alex will talk about how Ledger views this model of localized self-custody security as a platform upon which all sorts of applications can be built. I'm looking forward to diving into one of my pet topics with him, the concept of security at the edge and its potential to shift the dominant paradigm around cybersecurity. Our other guest is Dr. Naveen Singh, the CEO of Inary, which is building a blockchain protocol that manages both a decentralized storage network and a decentralized database. The second part of that, the database, has proven to be one of the hardest nuts to crack in crypto, but it's vitally important. Because at the end of the day, so many NFT and DeFi platforms are still dependent upon centralized databases, most prominently MongoDB, which leaves them in a certain level of vulnerability. Can Inary do a better job forging that market than others, such as uh, the big chain DB? We'll see. Anyway, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here. So, uh, hi there, guys. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Alex, to you first. When we met in London, you talked about how the ledger devices can form something of a platform. I think this is a bit of a leap for people because they think of it as a sort of a narrow, one-dimensional thing that secures their tokens. But you're talking about, through this enterprise project, of using that as a foundational layer upon which all sorts of other applications can be built. Can you walk through what that means? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a critical thing to, to get clarity on, Michael, and it's very important for the community to better understand what you actually do with a hardware wallet and how security plays into it. Uh, so from a digital asset and from a token perspective, your assets are actually on the blockchain. They're not in your wallet. The record that assigns you ownership of a specific asset is on the blockchain. It's on the distributed network. Uh, it's recorded there, and uh, the consensus mechanisms make that record adopted by a wide network of, of servers. What you hold in your hand with your hardware wallet is the ability to then change that record, 
right? So the ability to sign another transaction that moves the assets and creates a new record on the blockchain. And in that regard, what we really protect isn't the assets. What we really protect is your ability to interact with them. It's the ability to move them. It's the ability to create DeFi transactions with them. It's the ability to mint your NFTs, right? It's the ability to stake your assets. And what we've seen recently is a huge explosion in the variety of different use cases that are starting to become available to our users, which means uh, in a lot of ways that the attack surface is also getting wider and wider. Uh, There's been a lot of stories recently around the challenges in the NFT space around phishing attacks and, you know, people uh, losing their NFTs because they're using software-based wallets and software capabilities. And that's a very easily attackable surface for a sophisticated individual, for a sophisticated attacker. And as the value of these assets is starting to increase, obviously, there's a honeypot effect. uh, So it becomes much more attractive for people to go after users. What we want to make sure to do is bring that hardware security component, the hardware wallet, the Ledger Nano, and empower a much wider set of use cases through that secure capability. And to do that, you can't rely on a single organization, right? We can't accommodate for all the different use cases that are going to be emerging in this ecosystem. So what we've done is we really opened up an SDK and we empower other developers to be able to create plugins onto the device, into the firmware that allows to sign a variety of different transactions, allow the user to visualize with what you see is what you sign, what exactly it is that they're signing, which is critically important. And that basically enables us and the community at large to support a much wider set of use cases with that core security principle in mind. That is very much focused on the retail side, but the same set of challenges applies to enterprises, to organizations. The same set of interactions, even greater value that you have to protect, even more transactions, right? Organizations interact with blockchain much more frequently than you and I do because they're creating value and they have different operational processes that need to be able to support. And there, the premise is very much the same. We need to be able to be in a situation where we provide the tooling, the APIs, the support, and the security layer to empower organizations to build their own solutions, to build their own use cases, but do that securely make sure that their private key materials and all of their interactions with distributed platforms are fully secure and have the right operational capabilities and governance layer to be able to scale the operation what they need to be able to do. Uh, good, thank you. I, I'm glad you laid out that distinction at the beginning about like what you actually are securing because I think people just tend to think, oh, I am holding my assets in this device, right? But then once you get to the way you just described mm-hmm. it as being managing your capacity to interact with that, the key that gives you the, the right to actually execute a transaction. I think that helps to then layer in, okay, what is it that I'm now enabling when I'm interfacing with you know, APIs and various other things that you're building here? So yeah, it's a really useful way, I think, to, to frame it. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. As businesses prepare for the token economy, EY is committed to building a better working world and connecting global business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. To learn more about the EY blockchain portfolio of products and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. That's blockchain.ey.com. Naveen, why don't you explain the problem that you are seeking to solve with Inery? So very good question, Michael, because it's the fundamental of the whole blockchain, which we are building. The problem lies into 
the decentralization, the data. It's all about the securing the data. That's one part. And then the second part is how do you manage the data? So the whole Web 3.0 part is based on one thing that a user of the internet actually owns his part of that internet, not the big tech giants, which are constantly taking out, constantly manipulating the data. They are constantly feeding us different things which we don't even know that, you know, feeds come out that you should buy this depending on our history. And also all those um, decentralized applications which are in the building now, even the exchanges, both centralized and decentralized, they're all using the centralized databases. So they're all not a part of Web 3.0 as we speak because the data again lies with the centralized and big tech giants. This is a problem which is very fundamental in the decentralization part, or this basically Web 3.0 part. And this is what we are trying to solve with our infrastructure project. And to be clear, it's about where the data resides, right, as opposed to sort of the way in which the database is created. Because, of course, the SQL databases are commonly used and they're sort of distributed, but they're distributed in terms of the access and the rights people have to that. But it's the storage of the data how it's managed that's that's critical. So you have to see here two things. Every blockchain structure is just the data which is stored. So blockchain is nothing just the blocks which have the data in it. So saying storing the data is actually every blockchain is doing it in different ways for different use cases. The key point here is not only store the data, but just to, to manage the data. That means to have the functionality of crude. So you can create, read, update, and delete. And you can keep on doing that, and you are the only owner of your data. The data is decentralized. It's on the nodes. It's stored on the blockchain in the forms of micro metadata. And we give a framework of the DB, which you actually download, but your whole data is then backed by the blockchain. So there is no single point of failure. And as long as one node is live, maybe 10 years from now, you can always retrieve your data through your private key. And then comes the same thing, which Alex has mentioned, is the is the access to the data. So the access to the data, you can have the access through the private key, but you can also have a permission layers on the blockchain where you can actually give permissions to different parts of your organization uh, who can come and then manage the data. So it's a full ecosystem of managing the data. The use case, or back to your question, why we're doing that? Because the whole decentralized part of the whole decentralized world, and we are all, I think, the volunteers and soldiers of the decentralized world. And that's our our vision to come to a place where not a big uh, institution or a government has the rights or holds the whole information of our data, but actually all the people in that community uh, provide something where a user can be sure that his data or anything, if it's it's NFT, it's again a data, belongs to him and nobody has access to him, access to the data until unless he wants it to do that. And that's our vision. That's where we are working on. That's a problem which we want to solve in that space. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fundamental, right? It's, it's almost the holy grail here, right? It, it is what we're all talking about as we go into the Web3 age. If I'm going to have an NFT and I'm going to have control over this piece of art, well, how do I know where that art is? You know, who's controlling the data that's part of that is just so important. If you lose that, then what claim can I have to this other asset? I think it's a really important question. But you're not the first people to try to solve this. Big chain DB is another one. They've been around for a number of years now, now but you know, haven't really taken off, certainly not in a universal sense. What are you doing that's different from them? You know, how are you going to be able to, uh, you think, really achieve what's needed here? So we started with this concept in, in late 2018, 2019, and that's a 
time when also big chain DB came in and we were closely monitoring them. The, the point is there, as you have mentioned before, there are a lot of obstacles. It's not so easy. It's a fundamental holy grail of the whole decentralization space. But to solve that, there are a lot of points which needed to be tackled one by one. And one of the biggest part was you cannot make a decentralized database framework without having a blockchain which actually sustains the requirements of the data. You know, the query rate where you can pull the data, you can update it, you can send it back. You can you have to use the data which is on RAM. So there are a lot of ways, every enterprise its own requirement, how do they use data? And that's a part where BigChainDB was a very good project, had amazing partners, was backed by MongoDB, which is one of the biggest non-SQL-based database. They use a Tendermint blockchain. The issue was not any existing blockchain, which is in the market now. A lot of people say, why you guys need to have a blockchain? I mean, there is a Filecoin, there is Arweave, there is Cosmos, there is Polkadot, there is Solana, there is everyone. And said, yeah, every one of them has its own uh, vision and they are solving or, or adding some fundamental value to the ecosystem. Whereas ours is only the data management. So what happened with BigChainDB is that they actually miscalculated the requirement of a blockchain which can actually fundamentally support the requirements of data management. So they wanted to make the DB on the top of Tendermint protocol, but the Tendermint blockchain was not able to sustain those requirements. So they quit the project. And that's the play time when we did an extensive research. We looked in all the existing file storage blockchains or IPFS system, and we came up with the thing that we need to create something new, which is not an interplanetary file storage system. We need to have something which is completely decentralized. So an IPFS system, actually, your files are stored in a, in a centralized server, and then they are hashed through the blockchain. We said, no, we want to have 100% decentralization of that. So for that, we needed to build a layer zero blockchain from the scratch, which actually supports the whole data management part. So laying that foundation, once the mainnet is live, it will be a public blockchain. So anybody can come on the ecosystem and develop something else. Which we, will, which we hope or we think that the tech world or all the programmers in the world would, who are amazing brains, they will come to the ecosystem and build something which is even much better and add more value than what we are doing in the, in the decentralization ecosystem. Okay. And just one last question before we come to Alex. I want to see if we tie these two ideas together here. But before we do, you know, what you're describing, you know, obviously a, a blockchain that's working specifically for this purpose is going to need interoperability with all the other functionality that Alex's team as well is looking to support. So how are you working toward that? And what, what's happened in the last few years that's enabling now the capacity to interface, whether it's you know, through layer two solutions and so forth? So the biggest uh, advantage would be for this protocol is the cross-chain interoperability. Now, there are a lot of challenges for the cross-chain interoperability because you need to create for every blockchain its own library, which is specifically in relation to the programming language which has been used in that blockchain. For example, for Solana, we need to create the libraries for Rust. For EVM compatibility, we need to do it on Solidity. I always say it's a long-term project. The blockchain is ready from our side. The DB part is also 95% ready. We are creating now the libraries for the most widely used languages like Python, PHP, Node.js. In the second phase will come the interoperability of the blockchain, which will solve another very subsequent problem, which is going to come in the next two to three years. All these metaverses, I mean, you see there's a lot of rise in metaverses and almost every institution would like to have their own metaverse. Some are working on it, some have been partially successful. But each metaverse is kind of like its own country where nobody can come in and go out. 
you know and mm-hmm. that's going to happen that if i have bought an nft on one metaverse i have paid let's say 20 ethereums for that i would like to migrate that nft in another metaverse because they are my friends hanging out there it's a virtual world and that interoperability between the metaverses is also a problem which we are completely focused to solve. So if both of metaverses are attached together with the layer zero protocol who does the data management, you can actually pull the data from one metaverse to other one. Easily said than done, but it's something which is going on, which we will be in next few months able to produce a first mm-hmm. use case for that. You get a sense of it being a very big project though, right? Which is important that you've got a community of developers who are interested and engaged in it because it's, it's a lot of work to be done, but it's exciting. Alex, when you hear that and you think about how you know, Ledger and its approach to securing access to assets at the local level, how do you see all this coming together? What does this, you know, this bigger picture start to look like when you're seeing you know, metaverses and NFTs and then a, a decentralized database like the one that Inary is producing coming together with this key management process? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, Really interesting set of use cases and a huge problem to tackle. So really best of luck to you guys and and the ability to achieve that. Uh, Naveen brought up an interesting point where we kind of talked about distribution versus decentralization, right? So centralized systems can be distributed. Major databases, and Mike, you mentioned this as well, run in the cloud on highly distributed networks that are fully redundant with a lot of throughput and operation. The challenge is that if you want something to be decentralized, you really have to put the points of control in the hands of the users. And that's really the primary distinction between Web 1, uh, Web 2, where we currently are, and Web 3 of the ecosystems and the metaverses that are being built on these distributed and decentralized networks. So the decentralized aspect is really important to capitalize on. And this has really been the hypothesis of Ledger from inception, that to have true decentralization, you have to be in a position to put the point of control in the hand of the user, right, versus in a centralized authentication authority, right? So you, you can't do this on the server side. It has to be done on the client side. Through that premise, you really need to be able to support security at the edges. And then if you're able to do that successfully, it creates a bit of a layer of abstraction, right? As long as the point of control is in the hand of the user and you have the right interoperability to Naveen's point uh, and the right models in place and the right software in place, to have that point of control applicable across a wide range of different networks and a wide range of different use cases, then you can really start to develop these ecosystems together with the user base and have basically infinite possibilities of how these things interoperate, interact, and do that within that secure confines of a secure experience, secure portal, and secure Web3 model right, for every single Mm -hmm. user that decides to interact with it. You've given me a nice segue to what I wanted to talk to you about anyways, is you know, security at the edge. It's a concept that I've always been interested in because I've looked at primarily looking at cybersecurity and how broken it is. You know, you have this world in which there are all these honeypots of data, like massive companies, big banks, hospitals, everybody sitting on these gigantic pools of very, very valuable data. They're engineers building walls that protect them. But hackers figuring out how to get over the top all the time, it becomes a cat and mouse game between the hackers and the guys who are building the security system. I recognize that the economics is just wrong because what's happening is the bigger that those data pools become, the more attractive it is to a hacker, the more valuable it is therefore to invest in some sort of mechanism for getting over the firewall. And ultimately that's why we're seeing ever increasing amounts of hacks. And people talk about literally trillions and trillions of dollars every year 
being lost in cybersecurity attacks of multiple kinds. And we hear a lot about it with Bitcoin being used, for example, in the various attacks, the, the ransomware attacks and so forth. If we change the economics so that rather than having these gigantic pools of value that are just so attractive, we pushed it out to the edges and that's where you had to attack. You might still be able to attack the guy with the ledger because he was stupid enough to leave his seed phrases out somewhere. But it's going to cost you enormously to do every single ledger to get the pool of money that's equivalent to going after the hospital. So to me, it's just, it is the only way forward out of what is a fundamental problem that we have with our systems. I suppose I'd like to hear both of you to talk this through, like both of your models for how the world should work. How do we get the rest of the world to understand this? Corporations and others that are starting to play in this world and really think differently about what security and decentralization should look like. So Alex, you take it because I know we chatted about the other night. So, Yeah, I mean, this, this is a topic that we can talk about for, for quite some time, but we can definitely start off. And maybe one thing worth mentioning is I, I worked with a good amount of chief information officers in my career. Generally, kind of when you go into a security conversation, the first matter assumption has to be that the endpoint is insecure. Whenever, whether it's a laptop or a mobile phone or anything else that's connecting to your corporate network, right, it is assumed to be insecure. And the traditional mechanisms for dealing with that assumption is that you need to have strong perimeter control. Right. And that is fundamentally for the last 40 years really been the underlying premise of how large organizations and internet providers and service providers deal with security. Uh, you set up very strong perimeter controls and then you set up internal monitoring and analysis of your systems to on an ongoing basis do threat detection and intrusion detection models and manage the logs. And to your point, Michael, it is not a cost effective model. It is very difficult to do this at scale. And as the technology has been evolving, the scale of operations is evolving, the interoperability of all these systems is evolving, it is almost impossible to cover and capture every single exponential use case of variability in these models. So we've been strengthening the perimeter controls, but also kind of the next generation of that, and this is kind of what we're seeing now, has been around distribution of risk. Right. And that's where we've seen kind of the evolution, you know, with the invent of blockchain now for multiple years evolution of zero-knowledge proofs, right, MPCs. In my mind, these are all attempts at decentralizing risk to a certain extent, but not distributing risk, not decentralizing it fundamentally, right? Because what you're talking about in zero-knowledge proofs and what you're talking about in MPC is still servers, although distributed multiple servers, not just one, maybe even in different networks, but still servers interoperating to create the same outcome. And you've distributed the risk across multiple machines now, but there's still few machines, right? It still doesn't scale to the number of users that you might have in the system, right? MPC doesn't work with millions of participants. So it's really not true security at the edges. It's just a decentralization of risk to a certain extent. It is helpful, but it's an incremental step to what we're really looking to accomplish with security at the edges, which in our current opinion, requires a secure hardware component in the hands of the individual. And that secure hardware component needs to be able to show to the user with a degree of certainty what it is that they're actually signing. What is the action, especially when there's value involved. Now, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute. I just want to get Naveen in here. But before I do, maybe just to quickly, Alex, like I mentioned at the top, you know, that this is third piece and that is ease of use. You know, it's almost like Zuko's triangle as well. You know, the decentralization, 
security. And the third one he called human meaningfulness, which can be translated in various, various ways, but it's this the idea that I, I want to be able to use it. And, and often when we try to solve those two legs, it gets really, really complicated for the end user. And to be fair, I have a legend now, no, and, it, and it's like, oh, it's pretty clunky. Like I do it, it's fine. I'm, I'll always do it because I know how important it is, but it's kind of clunky, right? And now you guys are right. advancing that. I believe you've probably got some advances coming at some point, so maybe we can flag that. It's solving these core fundamental problems, security and decentralization. How do we, in the same process, make it efficient? There were inefficiencies in decentralization, right? How do we make it efficient in the sense that it's easy to use? Uh, Naveen, maybe you sure. can just weigh in there. Yeah, Michael. So it's incredible how uh, we, this decentralization space, we all think alike. We were actually working or thinking about that from last two years. And the solution which we came is, it's just, I'm particularly talking about the DB part of Inery, is when you say, oh, it's a decentralized database based on the blockchain, then few programmers who have no exposure to the blockchain uh, you lose them or other people or enterprises, you lose them. So what we thought is, let's make the GUI, the gather user interface, so easy and so convenient and maybe in the same guidelines like the ones which is widely used, like MongoDB, so that anybody who doesn't even have experience in the blockchain space or the decentralized space can use it without even knowing how the blockchain works. So try to bring this normal people telling them, look, decentralization has a big, big, big advantage in comparison to what's going on. But to use it, it's as simple as you are using those centralized applications. Mm -hmm. So from the technical part and the and user interface we do, the more engagement we will see. This yep. is my part of that. Also, the third part of scaling, right? We need the adoption of these yes. people. Alex, very quickly, your thoughts on that, because I do have to wrap up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, scale, right, is the determining factor here. It's really critical. Really quickly, I mean, the, the primary objective of Web2 and the software that was designed and built for Web2 was adoption, right? Mass adoption. You know, large web companies were pushing adoption as much as possible because that had direct impact on their revenue opportunity and their user bases. And that was fine, right? That's exactly what we wanted because Web2 was about proliferation of information, sharing of information, social networks, discovery of information, and that's great. Uh, Web3 really introduces value into the web ecosystem. And the challenge with value is mass adoption at scale without security at the core can be catastrophic, right? Because billions of value can be erased in minutes uh, if you take the wrong approach or if a malicious actor you know, finds a, a hole in, in the model. And there you have to be very careful. You have to grow methodically and you have to solve the security hard problems first. You know, that was the genesis of Ledger. Like when the founders got together, they said, look, Web3 is happening, right? Value is going to be digital, but we don't have the secure hardware in place right now to create the right safe environment for the users to interact with that value. Mm -hmm. And that's what we fundamentally look to solve for. And to your point, that will evolve, right? The, the user interfaces will get better. Functionality will get better. The hardware will continue to get better. But it was important for Web3 to solve the security first and then move on okay. to adoption. The sequencing certainly makes sense there, right? And until we get this right, we're all, you know, what's the point, right? If it, if it all just goes right. out the door, then it's not worth anything. Listen, this is a tremendous, and there's so much more we could have done. It's like we're scratching the surface of, of what is a very big topic, but you're both involved in very exciting projects. And so thank you so much for taking time away from that to chat to us. 
uh, Alexander of Ledger, Naveen Singh of Inery. Thank you to all of you for joining us once again this week and come back again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Michael J. Casey and guest Alexander and Dr. Naveen Singh. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam Levine. Our theme song is Shepherd. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>